0: don't normally bring out recall information on a pulpit like this, but I feel like I need to bring this recall information to you as it uh, seems to impact. I got uh, this in the form of an email. Recall, notice, comes from the maker of all human beings. He's recalling all unit, units manufactured regardless of your make or year. Due to serious defects in the primary central component of the heart. This is due to a malfunction in the original prototype, prototype units, codenamed Adam and Eve, resulting in the reproduction of the same defect in all subsequent units. This defect has been technically termed subs- subsequential internal non morality, or more commonly known as sin. Some other symptoms are the loss of direction, foul vocal emissions, amnesia of origin, lack of peace and joy, selfish or violent behavior, depression or confusion in the mental component, fearfulness, idolatry, and rebellion. The manufacturer who is neither liable nor at fault for this defect is providing factory-authorized repair and service free of charge to correct the sin defect. The repair technician, Jesus, has most generously offered to bear the entire burden of the staggering cost of these repairs. The number to call for repair in all these areas is P-R-A-Y-E-R. Once connected, please upload your burden of sin through the repentance procedure. Next, download atonement from the repair technician, Jesus, into your heart component. No matter how big or small the sin defect is, Jesus will replace it with love, joy, and Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And please refer to the operating manual, the Holy Bible, for further details on the use of these fixes. As an added upgrade, the manufacturers have made available to all repaired units of the facility, enabling direct monitoring and assistance from a resident maintenance technician, the Holy Spirit. Repaired units need only make him welcome, and he will make up permanent residents on the premises. Well, this is an email you and I might receive in language that we are familiar with somewhat, but speaks to a greater truth, and that is simply this. You and I are born broken. We are born broken. And yes, if God wanted to make a recall on all humans made, it would make sense. Because the fact of the matter is, we are born sinners. I laugh about this every once in a while and sometimes I cry about it when I see my own children, I realize, you know, they carry the same genes that are in me. We get most upset at our children when we see the sins of our life in them. When we see our bad attitudes expressed in them, we get angry. When your parents got angry at you, it wasn't just because of what you were saying and doing, it's because that they were doing the same things themselves. We uh, had one uh, person asking me in, a, in an application process, When was the last time I lost my temper? And I kind of laughed at that, uh, realizing then that it was because of my dog. But now there have been so many times I've lost my temper, and all I needed was a wife and kids. And it just seems to produce temper-breaking moments. Uh, Why? Well, because now finally someone is enacting their will upon me, and I don't like it. I like my will to be done. And uh, when I don't get my will done, I get angry. My anger is tied to my sense of control. We get angry a lot because we want to control a lot. Well, you know, I, we laugh about this because I, 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 I kid my dad to say I got it straight from him. You know, we, we, uh, with a name like Scott, it's hard to deny some Scotch-Irish ancestry somewhere back there. And we make a big joke about that, that, you know, we got a big temper problem in the Scotch-Irish uh, background. And, uh, I, I can say my grandfather, I saw him lose his temper many a time as well. And, and so, well, you know, it's, it's a family issue. And it is. It's a family issue, but it's not tied to the Scott gene. It goes way back to predate the name Scott to uh, really all of us. The ancestors of all of us. Your fathers and your mothers, yes, had temper problems. Yes, they had lying problems. They had greed problems. Problems. They had a desire to control everything around them. Type of troubles. Yes, I am talking to a bunch of lying, scheming, murderers in their heart. All right, uh, I know this. I know that's in your heart because it's in my heart. There are moments and times when I flash murder in my heart, and I've seen my children do the same. Uh, these sweet little children that you saw singing and singing praises to God, I can testify at least to one of them that there's murder in their heart, okay? And uh, I know my youngest one, the three-month-old, there are moments and times I've heard him crying, and I know I heard the distinct cry, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you, and the tone. The only thing that stopped him was he did not know how to operate a gun, And that's, uh, you know what? God made babies that way for a certain reason, all right? There is murder in our hearts, there is a desire to control in our hearts. It's in our life. And so I want to take you to Genesis chapter 3. We're studying the book of Genesis. We're going from the beginning. As you can see, we haven't gotten too far yet, just in the third chapter. But here in this chapter is the biblical pivot point of all of history. Without a Genesis 3 and the truths that are in it, there is no Palm Sunday. Without a Genesis 3, there is no need for a crucifix and a resurrection. There is no need for these things unless there is a Genesis 3 which identifies and explains the fall of mankind everywhere. Now, as I'm going to warn you, as we read these things, there will be things and attitudes that will be very familiar to you. You will recognize these things. It explains reality. But let me warn you. Heed this. Beware of using this merely to explain why your spouse acts the way they act. All right? I want to warn you. Don't use Genesis 3 to explain how, why your parents act the way they act, or your children the way they act, or the way they act, or your coworker, or your bosses, or your neighbors, or the politicians that we have. It's easy to do. It's easy to do, but I'm going to, t- I'm going to tell you that if you go into that mood, you are just following what Genesis 3 would said you would do. I'm going to tell you, take Genesis 3, don't use it to explain everybody else, look at it for yourself. Explaining yourself and why you act the way you do. Now, I hate the fact that Genesis 3 exists. It's there, I can't deny it, and uh, I don't like reading it, uh, but... Nonetheless, that's my commitment to you, and I think we're better for it. And so let's read Genesis 3 together, and let's stand in honor as we read this together. Uh, Not because we're happy about what it says, but simply because it is the truth recorded for us in the Word of God. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? The woman said and the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to me with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. The Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of the life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, and sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. And sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. And the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till I return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and to dust shalt thou return. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And to Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand, he can take also out of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the gardens of Eden cherubim's and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. You may be seated. Verses 1 through 6 describes the temptation and fall of man. And verses 7 through 11 is the counting of sin. And then in verses 12 through verse 24, you have the judgment of ...of God upon sin. And so those are the three aspects of this passage that we're going to look at together and study together. And so let's begin in first one, looking at the temptation and fall of men. Now as we keep reading, the first thing that strikes us was this serpent that is there. The serpent is more cunning than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord had God had made. So we know it's part of his creation. God made it. However, in nowhere in this passage does it tell us that the serpent is Satan... In fact, you have to look later on in the New Testament to see this acknowledged. Uh, in fact, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, it says this. says, The great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So we see in Revelation 12 that the serpent in question is actually Satan, has come and taken the use of this animal, this form, this animal, and uh, by planting these thoughts and these seeds through the language of the animal into Eve's heart, he brings the fall of all mankind. And so we see this uh, right here from the beginning, alluded to in Revelation. By the way, you could take Genesis 3 and you can go all the way to Revelation. If you read Genesis 3, then read the book of Revelation, it would make total sense it would make total sense because in Genesis three you have the problem that is given to mankind. From that point on, all the way till you get to the New Testament, you have the search for the solution, and then the Gospels you have the solution presented to us, and then in Revelation you have the new scene given to us because of the solution. And so you can go from Genesis three and read Revelation twenty, uh, Revelation chapter. Genesis 3, you've got the problem. And Revelation, you've got the solution all coming together. And it makes uh, complete sense as we read it uh, together. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. Now, another word is crafty. I think that one of the words, uh, the reasons this was used, was to contrast chapter 2, verse 25. In Hebrew, we get this. In English, we don't get it. But the word for naked and the word for crafty are very similar in the Hebrew. It was a play on words to emphasize the innocence of Adam and Eve with the cunningness of Satan uh, through this serpent. And so this cunning animal, any beast of the field which the Lord God made, and he said to the woman, Now, you and I have to stop right here. You're saying, Is the Bible saying that the serpent is talking? Yes. That's what the Bible is saying is the serpent is talking. And so you and I are asking, well, is this like Chronicles of Narnia or something? Is this where animals talk? What's going on? Why isn't Eve surprised? We have no indication in this passage that Eve is startled or stunned in any way. Let me just share some possible explanations to this. One, maybe Eve is shocked, is amazed, and the Bible doesn't record it because that's not the point of the story. Possible explanation. The other explanation is, hey, you know what? Eve, everything's new to Eve. So why should she be shocked and surprised if the animal talks? It's just one more new thing that she's discovering on this day. Another possible explanation. And the third possible explanation, maybe animals can talk back then. Maybe there is some form of communication that occurs uh, and is normal between Eve and the serpent. I'm just going to put that out there. Let your imaginations go wild at that point. Um, I have nothing else to govern that, uh, that thought. Uh, and so, for whatever reasons, Eve is not shocked and uh, responds, has this dialogue with Satan. Now, in verse 1, you get the beginnings of the temptation, the attacks. How does Satan attack Eve? I'm going to tell you, it's very familiar. You will find it in your life as well. These same tactics that Satan used, you will find repeated Throughout the Bible, he used them with Jesus. He used them with David. He used them with many people who fought his sin. You will find it in your life as well. So it is important. Look at the tactics of Satan. How does he work? The first thing we see in verse 1, he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? One thing that tells me, Satan is aware of the word of God. He, has, he is aware. He knows what God told Adam. He is aware of these things, of what maybe Adam had told Eve. He knows these things. The second thing it tells me is that one of the tactics of Satan is to doubt the Word of God. You will find the same tactic in your life where someone will say, or you may say to yourself, does the Bible really say that? Or does God really want us to live this way? Surely not. Indeed, did God say these things? Friends, that is a tactic used over and over again to doubt the Word of God. Let me just tell you, that is why, as your pastor, I'm committed before God, with with witnesses on their deathbed, reaffirming this to me in my life, that my challenge, my charge in life, is to preach the Word of God. When you come here, you will hear me talk about a verse, and explain the verse, and I will go verse by verse by verse. And if you stick with me long enough you'll go through the book of Genesis with me. And if you and I both live together, you know, we'll go through the Bible, uh, verse by verse, word by word. Why? Because Satan's tactic is to work daily in your life to doubt the Word of God, to take it away from me, because if he can get you doubting, get you unaware of the Word of God, he's got you in a losing position in his life. So what do I do? I try to teach the Word of God every chance I've got. But it's not my responsibility alone. It is upon you because the Word of God is accessible to you. You have the ability to read the Word of God yourself. It is upon you to study the Word of God, to read the Word of God for yourself. One of the things that Satan will do in my life is to rob me of the Word of God so it's no longer important to me and that I will have many other things that will charm me and will consume me because if that happens to me, it will happen to many others. So... Satan's tactic, the word of God. He'll get you doubting it. What do we do? We keep the word of God in our life. Now, he says, Eve, did God really say that? And Eve is trying to respond to this. And the woman said to the servant, well, you know, let me see. What did God say? We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden of Eden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, some of you more astute Bible students who've been reading Genesis chapter 2 and hearing the commandment of God will recognize there's some differences in what God actually said and what Eve said that God said. Why are there differences? Did Adam tell her wrong? Maybe. Did Eve just remember this wrong? Maybe. We do not know, but her response is a little bit different from what God actually said. Let me just bring out some of these. First of all, she robs God of the generous aspects of his nature. In Genesis chapter 2, when God gives this command, he starts it off by saying, you may freely eat. You may freely eat of all the trees. But you notice how she responds. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the trees, which is the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat. When God gave the command, his emphasis was on the provision of God. When Eve recalls it, her emphasis is on the prohibition of God, of what God said we couldn't do. And that's how we still, we kind of approach that same uh, uh, strategy in life. This is all the things God has told us not to do. We emphasize it so much, what God has told us not to do. And one of the strategies is if we emphasize what God has told us to do and put our energies toward that, it will free us from these prohibitions and we won't be so concentrated on these. But nonetheless, we have Eve kind of skipping out a few words. But of the fruit of the trees which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. Now, at this point, she overstates the restrictions. Uh, God simply said, don't eat of it. But she adds to it, don't touch it. I don't know if it's Adam's addition, her addition. Maybe she just said, you know what, I don't want to get close to it, so this will keep me from it. Nonetheless, she overstates the restriction. Then she says, lest you die. In the complete literal aspect, God said, you shall surely die. She understates the consequence uh, of what will happen. Now, Satan's got Eve where she wants him. Where he wants her. He's She's starting to doubt. So let's go on. Verse 4. Then the woman, serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. Second strategy of Satan. The only way he get you doubting the word of God, it will get you doubting the consequences of sin. You're not really going to die what's the big deal if you just give this little bit of information about this little person it's kind of interesting anyway but it's gossip what's the big deal if i don't report to the irs everything that's been coming my way i won't get caught you know most I mean, that's statistically you know how's that gonna happen does that sound familiar What's the big deal if I just flirt with this person for a little while? No damage is going to cause. I'm just flirting with them. What's the big deal if I look at this website? No damage. No one's going to find out anyway. What's the big deal if I call this number and I set up with this prostitution? No one's going to find out anyway. Have you ever wondered where we get to these these scandals that we've got? Is it not because little bit by little bit we excuse and tell ourselves there is no big deal. We won't get called There Are No Consequences. Where do we convince ourselves? How do we convince ourselves of these things? I'm going to tell you that it comes, the origin right here, where we read it in verse 4. Satan says, you will not surely die. You're going to get away with this. You got away with it before. I remember I was just watching a little show just yesterday where a guy was robbing banks of all things and the very first time he robbed a bank, he said, you know, it's so easy. I just asked the lady for money, and she gave it to me. And I walked out. And I didn't get caught. And that was it. Until he did it eighth time, ninth time. And yeah, he did get caught. You see, we tell ourselves, how do we get to these points? It's by little bit by little bit. We mistake, listen, we mistake the generosity and mercy for God with his permission. Because God is merciful because he does not bring consequences immediately in our life, then we think he's given us permission, and we go on. That is a tactic that Satan will use in our life. Now, let's keep reading. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Third tactic of Satan, not only gets you questioning the word of God, not only gets you questioning the consequences of sin, Third, and most importantly, and this is the heart of sin, he gets you questioning the character of God. Surely, if God is such a good God, if such a loving God, he will not prohibit you from doing this activity, which means so much to you and so much fun. Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever thought that before? What's happening? If God is really good, then he will allow you to do this sin. And if you don't do this sin, well, you know, you're just missing out. You're just missing out. Listen, at the heart of every sin is an attack upon the character of God. When God gives us a command, it is a reflection of his character, of his goodness. His provision is good. His prohibition is good. All right, what does good mean? Good means, as we learned in Genesis 1 and 2, it reflects His nature, and it performs the purpose for which God has given it. So, our speech can reflect the nature of God and perform that which God made the tongue for. But our speech can also betray the beauty of God and that which God made it, and it no longer becomes good. Every part of our body and all the things that God has made can be good or can be evil. And when we start doing those things that God has told us not to do, We are attacking the character of God and saying his prohibitions do not extend from a good character. I don't believe they're good. I've got my own plan, which I believe is better. We attack the character of God. Now, as we look at this, let me ask you this question. Why is it that Satan's talking to Eve? Why isn't he talking to Adam? And why is Satan using the form of a serpent anyway? What's the deal with that? Is it because Eve is more soft-hearted and man is just cruel and mean, you know? Or is it because, uh, well, God heard the command, or Adam heard the command from God, and Eve heard the command from Adam, therefore communication, you know how men are terrible communicators. Uh, You know, maybe something got missed in the translation. Maybe the second hand wasn't as powerful as the first hand uh, knowledge of this. Here's a question I answered this past Wednesday night. Those of you who are here... Don't spoil it yet. It's going to come out. Those of you who weren't here, I'm going to let you wait in that for a little while. You should have been here Wednesday night. But we're going to talk about that, all right? There is a reason why Satan was talking to Eve and not Adam in this point. Now, uh, let's keep on reading. We've seen how this is coming about. And now we come uh, to verse 6. She's hearing what, what, what Satan is saying, the serpent is saying. If I eat this, maybe I'll be like God, which is... You know that's a powerful force. I want to be like God, and there's many folks who still strive and do measures of sin and heresy because they're trying to be like God. They want to know good and evil. Verse six. I I just wish we could skip this part. No, 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 no. Let's just go on. Let's go on. But last is here. Verse six. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. All right. Now, is there anything wrong with seeing a tree that is good for food? Is there anything wrong with seeing something pleasant to the eyes? Is there anything wrong with seeing something as desirable to make one wise? I'm going to tell you they're not. These were God-given desires. She had not sinned at this point. These were God-given desires to appreciate things good for food, to appreciate beauty, and to appreciate wisdom. The problem, though, is that God met these desires to be satisfied in Him and His creation. That she was to find the good things uh, to eat and have a desire for those things of all the trees that God had made, save one. And then that she was to see the beauty of His creation and praise God for it and to desire wisdom and therefore uh, propel that desire and thirst for wisdom to propel her into an intimate relationship with God. These were God-given desires. The problem is she's taken these God-given desires and now taking it and making the one thing that God has prohibited the object of her desires. And therefore, she's taking God out of her heart's cry. And that is the heart of the sin at this point. This reminds us of 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 17. In the passage, it says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, or our cravings, the lust of the eyes, what we see, the beauty and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. In other words, we have been so tainted because of what we've seen in Genesis 3 that our cravings are messed up now. And they lead us astray because we have been marred by sin. And so, she takes the fruit and eats it. By the way, I do not believe that this is an apple. Uh... If you just want a theory, I believe it's the pomegranate. Uh, the reason I say that is because the tabernacle and the temple has a lot of similarities between the Garden of Eden and one of the decoration items in the garden are in the tabernacle and the temple, the only fruit is a pomegranate. And it makes me wonder whether or not this was one of the, the fruits in question at this point. That's all I, argument I can give for that. Uh, and so we go on. But you know one thing I like to note of is how Eve handled this temptation versus Jesus. Matthew four gives us the dealing with Jesus. Same thing, food. One this is the fruit of knowledge, of good and evil, the other one was a stone to turn to bread. And uh, he said, you know, Satan said to Jesus, why don't you turn this stone into bread? You're hungry? Yeah, sounds good. But you notice, remember how Jesus replied, he says, you know what? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, my life, my cravings is to be first measured and satisfied in God. That's where Eve messed up at this point. She did not say that. She said, you know what? Maybe I can find a measure of satisfaction outside of God. Friends, that's still the heart of sin today. When when Satan says, find some measure of satisfaction in your desires and a, a design and an activity outside of God's will. Ever wondered why it is that we have to have headaches because we're making so many decisions? Eve only and Adam only had to worry about one thing tree, knowledge, good and evil, one tree. That's it. All the other trees, I'm good. I don't have to worry about my interactions with Adam or with Eve. I don't have to worry about myself, with God, with creation, all these things. You know how many decisions we have to make in a day? Sometimes it starts right at the beginning, whether or not we're going to listen to alarm clock or not, because we have to go and do something that is a duty of ours, and we start sinning right from the beginning uh, when we start thinking about ourselves. And then we get up, and, and we, you know, our minds... and a a glaze we're not thinking about anybody else we're thinking about ourselves and we get our clothes and we got all kinds of questions what should i wear you know what would be flattering to my body you know what you know what am i drawing attention to to something other than what i should be and then you get out into the car um and then you got all kinds of things like that should i cut off this person would that be godly or not you know uh should i you know stop at this top was that yellow was it red you know we've got a just a huge amount of decisions we hadn't even talked about our interactions with our spouse or with our kids and our co-workers and that boss you work for you know there's all kinds of decisions that we've got to figure out adam and eve don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil just one simple thing but simplicity is not what we have we have to keep reading she took of its fruit and ate then she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. We don't know how long he's been sitting there next to her. We don't have that detail. But at this point, he's next to her. She gives to him, and he eats. And it is at this point, all of mankind is doomed to sin. If it was just Eve, and Adam did not partake, there would have been hope. Within Adam was the seed, the makeup, of every human being that was to come. So when Adam sinned with all the genetic code within him, and he disobeys God, forever he taints the gene of mankind. So every person born of a man that has the male seed within them, they have that seed. Which, by the way, is important that Jesus was born of a virgin. Bypassed that altogether. And yet, he had to be man so he could represent man. So... He eats. Let's keep on going. Verse 7. We've looked at the temptation and fall of man, the sin. Now we're going to look at the accounting of of sin. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Here's the thing. At this point, man starts covering up. They start covering up their sin. It hits them. We're not good anymore. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, God had declared them good. They were reflecting the image of God. They were performing the purposes for which God had made them. Now, for the first time, they divorced themselves from God. They declared their independence, and they're no longer good. So what do you do when you're not good? You make yourself look good. You make yourself look good. You cover up. And that's what they start doing. And we see right here the beginning of marital strife. When they no longer have full intimacy with each other, they're ashamed of each other, and so now they cover up. And they have all kinds of tactics of doing it. For them, it was making fig leaf claws. For us, we have emotional strategies to do this. But I'm going to tell you, we're good at covering up. All i got to say is this word, dating. Dating. Dating is covering up. All right? It is. How many of you are the same as you were when you were dating somebody? You were just just holding up, having some sense of, of moral holiness for just as long as you could until you got married. All right? And then you just, you know, became real. Became real. That's dating. Well, that's what you got in life. What do we do to cover up? Well, we're not good anymore, so we try to look good. We get a church. We're not good anymore, so we try to look good, and we get religious. We're not good anymore, so we kind got to do what we can and become good parents as best as we could. We're not good anymore, so we try to be law-abiding citizens and help society work well. We're not good anymore, so we try to be char- charitable and civic-minded. We're not good anymore, so we try to at least stay consistent with our personal code of conduct. I mean, at least I'm not a hypocrite. I mean, I, I may be a drunk, I beat my wife, but I'm not a hypocrite. I've got my own personal code of conduct, and I, and I stay by it. You know, uh, I have some appearance of good. This is the birthplace of shame right here. When we start covering ourselves up, the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And the sad tragedy of it is, it doesn't matter what our cover-up strategy is, the sin is still there under that thin veneer that we call holiness. Underneath it is our selfishness. And it's been there all along. And we get mad because we see it in our children. What do we do? with This thing called sin. Well, what's the next strategy? We're going to find out covering up doesn't work. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the breezes of the day. Remember, this is what we call anthropomorphic language. It's the language to help us understand God. God is a spirit. He does not have feet. He does not have hands. He does not have eyes. But we have a hard time understanding someone like that. And so this language is used to help us to to have an idea of what God is doing. So no, you're not seeing the footprints of God in the Garden of Eden, but you have a very precious, uh, special presence of God at this moment in time uh, that is there and that Adam and Eve are aware of and they know. And at this, they hide themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the Garden. So what's the second strategy? If we can't cover up, we avoid and evade. We avoid and evade. Let's not talk about that, God. In fact, let's not bring up the name of God, if you don't mind. That's a personal thing, by the way. And so let's just not talk about that. Oh, death, well, you know what? I don't like to think about that. It makes me depressed. Uh, And so let's just talk about cheery things and happy things. And let's not talk about the sad things of life. And so we live our life with that same strategy and try to avoid all these things that may hint that we are guilty before God and we're going to be held accountable before him. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve, there is a gulf between the presence of God and ourselves and we try to hide. And verse 9, God called to Adam and said, Where are you? You see a series of questions that God gives to Adam and Eve. And it seems like these questions leap out of the page and they're no longer just to Adam and Eve. They start... Knocking on our own heart. Jared, where are you? Andy, where are you? Phil, where are you? Where are you? There's a gulf in your life. What do we do? Verse 10. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Jeremiah chapter 23 says, I am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God far off. Can anyone hide himself in secret places? So I shall not see him. Do I not fill heaven and earth? In other words, you cannot hide your sin from God. As much as you may be shamed, as much as you cover it up, as much as you try to avoid the issue, God is aware, he knows of the selfishness in your life. Verse 11, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Shame is there. Shame is not the product of social convention. It is the product of a holy God and a man that fails to meet. And so shame comes in. And the man said... Verse 12. We get the third strategy of dealing with our sin. Cover up. Avoiding the issue. Verse 12. Listen... The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Third tactic, blame. What do you do when you are no longer good? You make yourself look better than the person around you. All right? You can't avoid it. You can't cover it up. You just say, well, God, look at this person over here. You know what? I'm a lot better than them. You know what people are in prison doing the same thing? Well, you know what? I'm on death row over there. Some poor death row inmate saying, well, you know what? At least I've not been this way all my life. I've had some good moments in my life. The thing is, I don't stand any difference from the person in the death row cell. I am guilty before God and blame is not going to get me out of it. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave. You know what Adam's doing? He's blaming God. It's your fault, God. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this have you done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. It's Satan's fault. He made me do it. The devil made me do it. God said, no. No, the devil didn't make you do this. You chose to do this. You were deceived, yes, but you chose to do this. And Adam, you heeded her voice. You were not deceived. You know good and well what you were doing and you did it anyway. Now, let me ask, why did Satan attack Eve, not Adam? And why did he use the form of the serpent? When God created the world, he created Adam and Eve. He first said God, God made Adam, and God was the head of Adam, and Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the headship of Adam was not a result of the fall, it was something done before the fall, and then out of Adam he made Eve as a help meet of equal essence before God, before them, knowing they were the same stuff, together representing the image of God, but Adam taking responsibility over Eve, looking out for the best of Eve, the authority over Eve, and Adam and Eve together looking out over creation, taking responsibility over creation. And and Satan attacking mankind, and how he did it, he was attacking God. What did he use? He used an animal. An animal upsurped Eve. A woman. A woman upsurped man. And man upsurped God, every chain of authority, every role of authority that God had put out, Satan used to turn on his tails against God. If there was any semblance of God's authority, he attacked it, whether it was in the creation world, whether it was in the sex world, or whether it was in the world between humans and God. And so consequently... When God comes to Adam, He goes to man first, not Eve. Why? Because man was responsible. Then He goes to Eve. Then He goes to the serpent. And then when He starts going to the condemnation, He goes from the animal to Eve, lastly to mankind. Blame is the tactic we will use, but it will not work. And so let's look at the judgment of sin by God. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed more than all the cattle More than every beast of the field, on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust. The penalty of their rebellion of the the serpent is that of humiliation. The consequence found in verse 15 is that I will put in between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall breathe. Bruise his hill. The consequence of the serpent's act in this is that he will be defeated by the seed of woman. Now, this I believe is speaking the very first time a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. He refers to a singular seed. Some will say, Well, that's just a collective noun referring to all types, but I believe that in the nouns that you see throughout, it makes both sense to refer to the singular. One seed and her seed, referring to Satan. And he, singular, shall bruise your head. In other words, there will be a devastating, defeating blow by the seed of woman upon the serpent. And you shall bruise his heel. In other words, there will be a wound done to the seed of man. And so what you have in Jesus Christ, born of a woman, why was it important that he was born of a woman so he could fulfill the prophecy of Genesis 3.15? Why is it important that he was a virgin birth? So that he would not have the the taint of sin done through Adam. And he comes and he dies on the cross and there he finds his heel. Bruised it, wounded him, but God has the last word, and Jesus comes up out of the tomb and proves to the serpent that the victory will be his. And so, when we come to Revelation chapter twenty, verse two, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. A few verses later, the devil who deceived him was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He says, "Satan, you have won." For a little while, but you will not have the last word. God will have the last word, and He will do it through mankind through Jesus Christ. And that's why Revelation 20 is there, and it's important. And so the only question that remains is, well, God, why are you waiting thousands of years? Why didn't you just do it with Abel, the seed of, of Eve, or why didn't you do it with Cain? Why have we waited generation after generation, seeing devastation after de- devastation? I cannot give you all the answers to that, but I would point to you to Colossians chapter one verse sixteen, where it says all things were created through Christ and for Christ. And I would say that all these things of time being passed and generation after generation are there to glorify Christ. And in the generations of defeat and sin, we see Christ glorified even more, and how He is doing it. And now He goes to the to woman. Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. And so he says, the penalty of this act, this rebellion, is that you will now have pain in your child labor. Woman, can we hear an amen Uh, here at this point? Yes, you know that that it makes you, if you don't die, you want to die as you get through this point. And he says, this is a, a product of the sin. And then... Uh, He says the defeat of sin we find at the end of verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What is he talking about? help us understand, look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Just one chapter later, you have almost the same grammatical structure, the same words used referring to sin's desire over Cain. sin's desire over Cain is to master Cain. That same word is used here. What is he saying that woman shall desire or a man? It is that they will desire to master man. But the sad reality is, is that it won't happen. That history after history, that though women do not want to be mastered by men, do not want to submit to men, yet in history after history, you find that that has been the overwhelming majority, is that men have been in the place of abuse and power over women. The fact of the matter is, what he's saying is, you know what? Head up, submission, that was there before the fall. Now the difference, because of the fall, there won't be any harmony in a marriage. The penalty, you've got to listen to a boneheaded man who's a sinner. Don't, you don't have to amen that, okay? All right? And that's it. You don't like submission, and you hate it. And it's there, though. And that's what he's bringing out Before this, there was a harmony between the sexes and an intuitive submission that women felt and that they reveled in. And that the man had a a care and love for the wife that saw her as her equal and, if nothing else, as her better and that would uh, do those decisions, make those decisions that would lift her up and make her better for him being there. But when sin come in, the battle of the sexes began. And so women and men are in battle in exploiting each other. Men exploit women by their brute force of abusing and raping and sitting around and snapping their fingers and expecting women to move. This is an exploitation of men over women. But let me just share with you, before we get too into that, there is also an exploitation of women uh, on men as well. And it's just as pervasive in our society. Our sinful society just sanctions it. Let me just tell you, women will run circles around men verbally, but then they will also know the weaknesses of men and exploit that. I'm talking about woman's body. Why is it that woman's body is the number one market force in our society? Because they know the weaknesses of men and they exploit it. The only difference is that in our society in America, we sanction it and say it's a good market strategy. In other societies, you have the other extreme where they will sanction the abuse of men over women, i.e. Taliban, and others like it, who will say it's okay to be in a situation where you can snap your fingers and expect a woman to move and if they don't, you punish them and you abuse them and you get away with it. Both our exploitations are the same problem. The battle of the sexes began here. Verse 17. Then he said to Adam, He said, Because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you. What was the problem? Adam heeded the voice of his wife and disobeyed God, not only in taking of the fruit, but in usurping the authority lines that he gave. You shall not eat it. Curses the ground for your sake. and toil, you shall eat it all the days of your life. So, that, in other words, the penalty for the sin in their life is the frustration and pain that they will have in labor. The very things that we're dependent on. Labor is the very things that causes frustration. The very thing that humanity is dependent on. Child labor is the very source of pain that we must endure. It says, thorns and thistles it shall bring for you, and shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Now here's the defeat in verse 19. Knowing will you battle with the ground, in verse 19, you will lose to the ground till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, to dust you shall return. And so for when a man is born from the beginning, as well as applies to women, but to men, the moment they're born, we are battling with nature, battling with this dirt, trying to prevail, but every time man will lose. Guys, we are in a slow march of decay and death. (laughs) Alright, I just saw gray hair this past week popping up right here. I thought, there it goes. I'm losing the battle. I'm losing the battle. that's just how it is. It's a slow march to death. There are some good news. Even in this consequences, let me share some mercies of God. Adam called his wife's name because she was the mother of living. You know what? In this dark world, you ask yourself, is it okay to have kids? Should I have more kids when, when the nation is as it is, when this world is as dark as it is? I'm going to tell you, it's no darker than when Adam and Eve were in sin. There was no human that was living for God. They were all in sin. And yet God says to Adam and Eve, have children. Because it's in having children and doing in a godly manner that there is hope for this society through God. So, and also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of sin and clothed them. He provided for them. Verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Now let us put us out of his hand and take us also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. In other words, we're going to remove them from being permanent in this fallen state where they will live forever dead in their sins. Let's take them away from the tree of life. We find out in Revelation that this tree of life is transplanted out of the Garden of Eden and put into heaven where there will be access there for those who know the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. Then, verse 23, therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground for which he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The tabernacle and the temple later on, the entrance was always to be in the east, just as it is in the garden here. There in the tabernacle and the temple, there in border and every gate was cherubim. Cherubim were the special angels there for the express purpose of protecting the holiness of God. You'll see them repeated uh, when you see the holiness of God given in amazing ways. You'll see the cherubim there to defend the holiness of God. Now the cherubim are there with flaming swords to protect the holiness of God. From mankind this was an act of mercy that God was giving to man. Let me tell you what was so important. This is a pivot point in history. it explains reality explains why we are the way we are, explains why our parents are the way they are and why our children are the way they are and why governments are the way of our. Every single one of us has gone through the pivot point of sin. but let me tell you there's one other pivot point and it's your choice whether you take a part in this. That is the pivot point of Jesus' death and resurrection. Let me tell you what Jesus did. When he came, he was the seed promised in Genesis 3.15. He was perfect in his life, with free of sin, and yet he comes to a cross and he dies on that cross. Why, was he, why did he die on the cross? In a, in a manner of speaking, what he was doing is it was as if he was walking to the Garden of Eden in his holiness and he approaches the cherubim with a flaming sword and he tells the cherubim, Cut me down with your flaming swords, and let the penalty be of Adam's sin, on Eve's sin, let it be upon me. And as they cut away on Jesus' life and soul, it satisfies the wrath of God on your sin and my sin. And it is as if, spiritually speaking, a pathway has been opened up again for us to be in the Garden of Eden. For a little while, just in the sense, we can experience spiritually the forgiveness of God, taking away the penalty of sin, restoring, in some degree, marital harmony, restoring, again, to some degree, some spiritual life in our physical decaying bodies just for a little while, and letting us have the Spirit of God so that when death finally takes its full measure and we we pay that consequence of sin, we will be before God there with access to the tree of life and all that Adam and Eve lost and forfeited in the Garden of Eden can be regained to us, not because we cover ourselves up well, but because what Jesus Christ did in taking the wrath of a holy God is expressed through these cherubim and a flaming sword. Let me ask you simply this. We have talked a lot about this pivot point that brought you to sin, but have you experienced the pivot point that brings you to forgiveness through Jesus Christ? That is a choice that you can make. And just because you're born does not mean you walk through that door. How do you walk through that door? Stop covering up. Stop trying to make yourself look good. And do the exact opposite. Confess your sin before God and say to Him, I am a sinner and I make you Lord. I thank you that you sent your son to die for me and rose again. And I want to know what it was that Adam and Eve lost. I want to know what it's like to have the presence of God. Of God. Again in my life. And I'm going to tell you. Until you experience that. Our life is a pursuit of futility. Trying to get what we cannot have. Chasing after dust in the wind. Do you know. This of God. I invite you to pray with me. Father God. I thank you. For this word. I pray that you take it. Make it strong in the hearts of people here. That they would not be covering up. That they would not be blaming. That they would not be avoiding. But they would simply take the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Take it with all of their heart, with all of their soul. Experience the forgiving work that you've provided for us. I pray this in your precious name.